In the Huddle with Coach Calls Timeout, the podcast that dissects the mind of a different basketball coach every episode. We uncover what makes them successful and how their story translates to your coaching journey. Let's unlock your team's potential together. Welcome to episode 20 of the Coach Calls Timeout podcast. Dan Jonker here. This is really exciting. Today's guest is a Canadian basketball icon. Coach Steve Konchalski joins the show from St. Francis Xavier University, and he talks about his 42-year coaching journey with the same school and his time with the Canadian national team. He also shares some great stories along the way. Speaking of stories, stay tuned after this interview for a special Coach Calls Timeout podcast announcement. My brother Brian handles the interview with the Canadian Coach K. Let's get right to it. Brian here with you tonight in episode 20 of the Coach Calls Timeout podcast. And tonight we've hit the jackpot. We've got the godfather of Canadian college basketball, the original Coach K, Canada's Coach K. Coach Steve Konchalski from St. of X is with us tonight. And Coach, thanks for taking some time out of your busy schedule. Just ended practice to join me here tonight. My pleasure. For our listeners, we're a a coaching-based podcast. We talk a lot about philosophies and things to help people but we also like to tell interesting stories and uh, I mean you're in your 42nd season now with Saint of X uh, you spent 20 years in the national program 16 of them as an assistant to Jack Donahue and four more as a head coach you you must have a whirlwind of stories that you could tell but first off how for our listeners how does someone from from Queens New York end up in Annie Ganesh Nova Scotia well, that's a good question. Uh, first of all, I was recruited way back in 1962. It was a long time ago. Uh, I was playing high school basketball at Archbishop Malloy uh, High School, coached by a legendary coach in his own right, Jack Curran, um, who actually coached for 55 years, both both baseball and, and uh, basketball. He was the winningest coach in the history of New York State. Um, Anyway, I played uh, for him and, and Stu Aberdeen, who was the coach at Acadia at the time, who was originally from uh, Lewiston, New York, upstate New York, uh, in the Buffalo area. He uh, he uh, had a contact with Coach Curran and came down to New York and recruited uh, myself and another player um, from uh, from, Bro- uh, from Queens, actually, who played in high school uh, in Brooklyn. And we came up together back in 1962 to play at Acadia. And I spent four years there. And, uh, you know, we got a very good education, had a great experience. And, um, um, you know, we were very successful. We actually, uh, uh, won four league championships and one national championship, uh, during my four years there. And I just kind of fell in love with, you know, with Nova Scotia and, and with Canada. And, uh, um, you know, when the opportunity presented itself uh, several years later to, uh, you know, to come back to Nova Scotia and coach at St. of X, um, you know, I was, uh, I was thrilled to be, you know, to have that opportunity. Was it a bit of a culture shock coming from, from New York to Antigonish? Well, it was, uh, but at the same time, I, I think I made the adjustment pretty. I, I wasn't, you know, a city slicker type of thing. Young, young fellow at the time. I, 
I, I, I made the adjustment. I mean, there were adjustments, of course, but I, I really liked it. I liked, you know, the people, the, the hospitality, uh, Nova Scotia, the, the, the pace of life. Uh, is, uh, what I've always liked about Nova Scotia is the pace of life is quite a bit slower than New York or certainly Toronto as well. But, um, you know, you can go as fast as you want. I mean, I, I can, you know, my own pace of life doesn't have to be slow, but at the same time, when you, when when uh, when that's what you need, that that that, uh, that opportunity is there as well to you know to slow down and kind of keep things in perspective. Your parents did they support you moving away like that and, and getting so far away from home? Well, they. I mean, you have to remember back in 1962. I mean, it wasn't the internet. It wasn't. I mean, going to Canada was like you know going to Mars. Really, it was. I had to look at the map to see where Nova Scotia was. Um, but, you know, Stu Aberdeen was a salesman. He just sold my parents on the, the small school and the opportunity of, uh, to get a, you know, really high quality education. And, uh, he wasn't wrong in those, you know, in those, uh, you know, arguments. To, 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 and my, at first they said no. At first I said no, I'm going to stay close to home. And then he, he wouldn't take no for an answer. And, uh, you know, uh, he was persistent and, and it, I guess it paid off for him. And, and certainly for me, with the uh, opportunities I've had in Canada since I decided to make that choice. What made him a good coach? What made him a good coach? He was, uh, he was passionate. He was five foot two. Uh, he uh, had a great, great passion for the game. Um, you know, he lived for basketball. He had a great uh, affinity for doing individual work, which I really never was, you know, uh, even playing for Jack Curran, uh, you know, in New York, he, he didn't really take you in the gym and break the game down, and, 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 and Coach Aberdeen did that. Um, and he inspired myself and many others, because, you know, uh, the coaching tree that, 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 that Coach Aberdeen had, uh, several of us came up from the United States, Brian Heaney uh, uh, being one of them, uh, who played, ended up playing after Acadia in the NBA for a year with the old Baltimore Bullets. And, uh, and coached at St. Mary's and won three national championships at St. Mary's. And there's several others as well that were inspired by Coach Aberdeen to, uh, you know, to, to follow coaching, uh, as a career. Being in New York as a basketball player, uh, as a, as a young kid, did you get involved in in the legendary playground games, or were you strictly at the Y? Or, um, I mean, I think you've had some run-in with some some pretty uh, pretty big names in basketball history. How, how, what kind of experience did you have as a player in New York? Well, the thing about New York is you could go to a playground, and you know you may be playing against the guy from the local bar, or you may be playing against an All-American or an NBA player. Um, my local playground. Uh, which, you know, wasn't really renowned for producing great players, uh, although we had a, a, a group of 15 or 20 college players that played there, um, you know, uh, on a regular basis. And that's really, when I was 15 years old, I was the only kid that these 20 or so college players let play with them. Um, and that's where I learned to play basketball that summer, I would have to say, because they weren't, they, they, they taught me how to play the game, and they didn't back off. And the only reason they let me play is because I was there 24-7, and they said, hey, kid, 
you know, would, would you know, would they appreciate my love for the game and commitment to the game? And, and they say, hey, kid, you can play with us. And I was the only, you know, non-college kids that played. And some of these guys were playing at Providence and St. John's, some of them at smaller schools. So after, after, uh, the, uh, you know, it got dark. We didn't have lights at the time in, in that playground in Queens. Um, and I didn't have a car. I was 15 years old. They would say, yeah, kid, come, come, come with us, jump in the car. And we'd go to another playground that had lights. And we play, like I said, it could be against NBA guys or, or just could be local guys that are no name. But, uh, you know, the playground's renowned for people trying to make a name for themselves and, and not backing down to, to players who, who are already you know, had made, had made names for himself. And that, that particular summer was the summer that I, I think I learned to, I learned to play the game and, and uh, take it to another level. And, and, and when did you realize that, that the coaching part of it interests you? Well, to be honest with you, Brian, I never ever thought I was going to coach. When I finished at Acadia, I went on to, uh, Dalhousie Law School. And, I mean, this was the Vietnam era and I was, you know, Draft, I was draft age, and uh, so, you know, I, I, I and many, many others, you know, wanted to just, you know, stay away from Vietnam, and uh, we, we did that basically by continuing our, our education. So I went to law school, graduated from Dow Law School, never, ever thought I was going to coach. And then, um, long story short, after I went back and got my draft status, you know, straightened away, I eventually never had to go into the service, uh, and um, I uh, I came back to Canada and just gravitated to our coaching and got an opportunity to coach the junior varsity team out of Canada. This would have been in 1970, uh, 1971, and then I got to, you know, from there. I went to uh, Loyola College, which is now part of Concordia University in Montreal, and I was the assistant coach there for four years before the Santa Fe opportunity uh, presented itself. But uh, the biggest break I ever had, and I'll be forever grateful to Jack Donahue, uh, the great Jack Donahue, who unfortunately so many young people today in Canada, they, they don't even know who he is. I mean, what Jack Donahue did for Canadian basketball, you know, and, and for me in particular, uh, my own personal growth and development, both on and off the court, uh, it was amazing. I mean, we, we were struggling to get to the Olympic Games, to qualify for the Olympic Games, and, and with, with, with a third of the talent that is available today, uh, for our national team, he qualified for four straight Olympics. But he gave me an opportunity when I was a young coach to get involved with the, with the team back in 1973 as, as a manager, and the following year through a series of circumstances, I kind of slipped into an assistant coaching position, and I was his assistant coach for 16 years, as you mentioned earlier. And that was the uh, biggest break of my career. And, uh, you know, he and I became uh, very, very close until he passed away in uh, 2003. I'm 46 years old, and I think I'm kind of right on that fringe where I very much remember the the stories and the uh, kind of the bravado and the big character that Jack Donahue was but don't know him intimately well enough um, to understand kind of what made him tick. What, like what made him a special coach? Why was he so good? He was so good because his emphasis was on uh, coach-player relations. 
he, he spent more time with the players. I did all the scouting. Uh, you know, just back in the day before all the video editing and analytics that we have today. But I did all the scouting. And he, he, he just said, you, you watch the games. I'm going to go spend my time with the players. And he got, you know, he motivated the players. Um, his first year, this is a great story. The best, best player in Canada was a guy named Billy Robinson. He was a guard from Shemanis, uh, British Columbia. Toughest, one of the toughest players that, his name has kind of been lost in the, in, in the history of Canadian basketball because of the, you know, the Trianos and the Nashes and Routens and whatever and, 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 and Wiggins now, you know, that, that, that whole, uh, generation. But Billy Robinson back in 1972 was the best basketball player in Canada. And Jack Donahue had the national team tryout and Robinson was a free spirit. Um, he came in with a big beard and his hair and, you know, long hair and, uh, unshaven and the whole thing. And Jack Donahue cut Billy Robinson. He cut the best player in the country. I said, you're going to, you're going to do it my way or, or you're not going to play. And, uh, people couldn't believe it. <laughs> Billy couldn't believe it. The next year, Billy Robinson came back clean shaven and he was the best player in the country and led us to the 1976 Olympics uh, out of nowhere. Jack developed this team that was uh, I don't know, 25th, 20th, whatever in the world, uh, and we finished fourth in the 1976 Olympics in Montreal. Um, by him, you know, convincing this group of players uh, that they could do it, that it could be done, by putting a schedule together where we went to Europe and spent two or three months uh, every summer in, 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 you know, hostels and, uh, you know, traveling on, traveling by train and, you know, did what he needed to do and convinced the players that that's what, what was uh, the formula for success and it proved to be right. I mean, it's such a huge thing in coaching. And I think people who don't coach regularly, often enough, uh, maybe they're just helping out because their kids are involved, whatever it is, the the player-coach relationship and the relationships and the bonds that you build with your players ultimately determine whether they're going to go go through a wall for you whether when times get tough they're going to believe in you and stick with you and I think that's very uh undervalued to to people who are just starting out I mean obviously how much emphasis do you put on that well Jack Jack taught me early he's you know he, he said the coach people not players and I think that's, that's a great way to look at it and you know that, that's the reason why I've been doing this for 42 years is because of that philosophy that, you know, uh, you know, obviously we all want to win and uh, I've been fortunate enough to, to, to do a fair amount of that. Uh, but, you know, the relationship building, you know, the op opportunity to help young people, you know, through basketball. You know, I read, I read a story that the, the, the Hall of Fame of John McClendon, uh, who was the first black graduate of, of, of uh, University of Kansas physical education program who, who actually was a student of, of James Naismith. And James Naismith, his philosophy was that you have an opportunity as a coach to influence people's lives, uh, maybe to a greater extent than professors, teachers, or maybe even preachers. And it's because you have that bond with your students and your student athletes that you share your love of the game, your passion for the game, 
the, the competitive spirit, and you have that bond. And through that having through that common bond, you can you, you can have a tremendous influence on on uh, how how young people develop. Um, you know, not just on the court, but off the court. So I, I share that philosophy, and and uh, like I said, that's really what's kept me in coaching all these years. When you were an assistant for Jack for 16 years there, while you were obviously uh, a head coach at St. FX, did you have trouble transitioning back and forth from, from being the head coach to an assistant coach? And, and what types of things do you think helped make you a good assistant? I actually, after making all the decisions all winter you know, with the St. FX team, it was a, a pleasure to go and let him make the final decisions. I could just throw out all these ideas to him, which is what I constantly did. Um, and uh, by, that, by that time, and we really, uh, you know, we had a great relationship going, and we trusted each other. And uh, uh, he, I knew my role. He used to say, he used to joke that I had a 24-hour renewable contract. <laughs> that, uh, that if I didn't do my job, that, uh, that I'd be gone. And uh, he, he joked about it, but I knew it was true because <laughs> I mean I was I was the only guy there. It wasn't like he had five other assistant coaches like you know you might see today. But uh, and I knew the, the magnitude of how he was, how much he was relying on me. And uh, you know I you know I, I thought the world of the man, and 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 uh, I think about him every day. Uh, you know he passed away 13 years ago. I, I think about Jack Dunyu every day. So when you guys traveled um, to Europe and things like that, and you've got a smaller staff, um, like how involved were you or him in in actually having to make arrangements for where you were going and who you were playing? And I mean, I'm sure it was different than it is today. Well, yeah, but we still had a, we still had a manager and trainer, and they did they did most of that. They they did most of that. I would ha- I would have to say I was the manager one year, so I know that I. Um, I took on the manager's job, you know, uh, basically talking to Coach Donahue about, you know, the fact that I eventually want to coach, but he needed a manager that summer, and I said, well, it's a great opportunity to get my foot in the door, and it turned out to be just that, because uh, he couldn't get rid of me. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and uh, those years were, like I said, amazing years, you know, uh, four Olympic teams. Uh, unfortunately, we didn't go. You know, maybe the best team we had was in 1980 uh, with Leo Rounds and Jay Triano um, and, 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 and many others, of course, but uh, led by those guys. And, and that was the boycott year. We didn't go. You yeah. know? Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, and the thing about that boycott, we were in Puerto Rico and we we're playing phenomenal. We we're blowing out Brazil by 30. We're doing, we're, we're, this team had chemistry. This team had you know, everything you needed to be successful on the international stage. And uh, in the middle of the tournament, Pierre Trudeau makes the announcement that Canada is going to follow suit with the United States and boycott the Olympics. But uh, to show the character of this team, they just didn't pack it in. They kept on going. And uh, we ended up, you know, qualifying. Uh, and, uh, you know, they struck a medal for the Canadian. They, you know, they, they, they struck a medal for the for all of the Canadian athletes to qualify for that Olympics, but of course we never went. And um, it's unfortunate because some athletes never got to go to the Olympics, but a lot of those guys on that team, um, 
you know, decided to stay for 84, and, and some of them were so dedicated to Jack Donahue that they actually stayed for 88. Now, Leo Rounds is one of the ones that, were, you know, didn't have that opportunity because in those days the NBA players weren't eligible, and he was drafted, you know, a couple of years after, you know, like 82 or whatever, and I think 83 was his first year in the NBA. Um, so he never got to go to an Olympic Games, which is, which is really unfortunate. But a lot of the others, like Triano and, uh, you know, Jeff Kazanowski, Ron, 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 Ron Raff, um, you know, stayed with it and, and, and did eventually get to an Olympics. So in your travels, uh, country to country, I'm imagining that you've seen some pretty different things that you wouldn't see back home or in North America. Do you have any stories or any situations that you can relay uh, about playing on uh, foreign soil? Well, yeah, I mean, there's probably a lot of ads at the time to think about it, but just some of the things that you would see in international basketball in those days, uh, teams would actually uh, throw games in order to get uh, preferred matchups in, 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 uh, in the next round. Uh, you know, I, I witnessed the, the Soviet Union uh, play in the World Championships in 1982 in Cali, Colombia, play against the United States, and of course they were you know, arch enemies. But they didn't want if they were going to if they if they were to beat the U.S., they would have uh, uh, had to match up with uh, with the Yugoslavs in the semis, and they did not want to play the Yugoslavs. The Yugoslavs had their number back in those days. Um, so they, they started their five bench players against the United States. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, you would never ever see, see, see that in North America, you know. Uh, but, you know, and like I said, there some of the train rides we've had. And I remember playing in a gym in Belgium. There was a carpeted gym, an actual carpet. Carpet on the floor? A carpet on the floor. <laughs> and, and, and the weird part about it was not that... The lack of, you know, footing or traction. The weird part about it was you, you played the game with no, you know, you're so used to that ball, the noise of the ball bouncing hit the floor every time somebody dribbles, right? And it was, and it was, it was quiet. It was silent. There was, there was no sneakers squeaking and there was no, uh, ball hitting the floor. So I mean, like I said, it's a, a, especially in those days, the international game. Was, you encounter some very different things. I, something I was just telling the story with somebody today, actually. Uh, we're playing in Cuba, 19, 1973. We're playing in their big stadium against Cuba. And, and they had been, in 72, they were the bronze medalists in the Olympics. And we were just starting out, uh, with, with a, you know, a young, a young team. So they, they, they beat us by whatever they wanted to beat us by. But midway in, 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 in the first half, Fidel Castro and his contingent uh, walk into the stadium. Oh wow! And, and, and the uh, the whole stadium just stopped. The game stopped. The uh, uh, the, the two officials, the two officials, of course, just stopped the game and uh, waited. And everybody got up and cheered. And uh, it took, you know, it took them about three or four minutes or whatever to get him and his contingent to get to the, their you know their location at center court. And get seated, and during that whole time, everybody just stood up and, and clapped. And uh, being an American, 
in Cuba in 1973. I think I probably clapped the loudest. Yeah, I was just going to ask you. You and Jack are sitting there both as Americans. How did that go over? <laughs> That's right. Well, that was that was different. We visited the Canadian embassy, and uh, they called us "Don't talk politics" because we know we're bugged. You know, so uh, you know that that was the that, that was the world in those days. You know. Wow. Let's let's go back now to your family. You you've got a brother who he operated a, like a recruiting publication, right? Out of the out of New York or out of the U.S. Is that correct? He still he still does. Yes, he still He's, does. He's still active. Yeah. So uh, is he then? Um, is he a source, or he must be like a, an asset to you for for recruiting American players as well? Well, he was when I first came up. My first player that I ever recruited was a player by the name of Gil Green that Tom knew. Uh, and Gil was a wonderful uh, young man who stayed for five years, graduated, uh, got our program off the ground, um, and we're still very close today. He's retired, and he's in uh, lives down in Virginia. But so Tom helped me quite a bit in my early years. Uh, not so much anymore, you know, I mean, it's... It, it, in those days, in the, you know, in the 70s uh, and into the 80s, there were a lot of kids in the States that would slip between the cracks. You know, but it, 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 the way, you know, with so many scouting services now that nobody slips between the cracks anymore. No. You know, I could get I could get a kid that was a, maybe an all-city kid out of New York. And I did. I got a couple of them uh, through Tom back in those days. Uh, that some, for one reason, it just didn't work out for them to get, you know, the D1 scholarships uh, that they were, you know, capable of that. And they were capable of playing at that level. Uh, but today, in this day and age, uh, nobody slips between the cracks. I mean, even the D, the NAIA schools, the D3s, D2s, they, they all, uh, you know, and, you know, you, with, with, uh, you know, with technology where it is now, you, everybody sees everybody play. So there's not a lot of guys who who, uh, who people miss. At the CCA level for us, I mean, we're allowed uh, potentially three imports. I think you guys are the same. Is that correct? That's correct. But there was a time where there wasn't a limit, and you could have, I mean, there were lots of Americans in particular out east playing. Is that correct? Well, that's correct. Uh, you know, when St. Mary's, the one that really, uh, the tipping point was when St. Mary's uh, won a national championship. I think it was in 73. I could be wrong by a year or so. Uh, and they had 11 Americans and one Canadian. Uh, and uh, I was at Loyola College, as I mentioned earlier, in the early 70s. And we, uh, I mean, you know, you can drive from Montreal to New York in about seven hours and I did that, and I just bring back a carload of uh, players. Uh, we had some very good teams. We never won the national championship, but we got there a couple of times. Uh, and had some very good kids from the states. Um, and in those days, there was no differential fee for uh, uh, for uh, out of country or international students. Yeah, for tuition. Like, uh, Somebody from the U.S. would pay the same tuition as a Nova Scotian or. Or, or, you know, a Quebecois or, you know, somebody from Ontario. So, you know, uh, it, it was, uh, very economical for, for kids from the States to come and play in Canada. What do you notice now? I mean, you've, uh, 42 years at St. of X. What do you 
think the biggest differences that you see in coaching now from the 70s and 80s to, to today? Well, I think on the court, it's clearly uh, in the sense of, you know, the, the, the caliber of the athlete uh, and the size and physical strength of the athlete. You know, uh, now granted in the CIS and, you know, in the CAA, you know, because most of the, you know, quality big kids are playing down in the States now, we, you know, we, we don't get as many bigs. But when I say big, I mean big in terms of kids are more physically developed and athletic and the defense is, is much more, uh, you know, a bigger factor in the game than, you know, than, than was in those days. I think, um, you know, you, you know, you can't, you know, you can't, uh, you know, everybody's arguing Oscar Robinson versus Magic versus LeBron or whatever. And I, I, that's a tough, you know, you, you can't, you know, just compare errors necessarily. But, uh, I mean, the great players in those days would be the great players today because they'd have the benefit of the physical training and, 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 you know, uh, all this summer training that you, you have now, you know, through the AAU circuit and whatever. I think that's the biggest thing on the court. Uh, I think the, perhaps even more so is the, is the issue off the court with, uh, you know, social media uh, and, and the way society has changed. And if you're going to coach for 42 years, uh, there's no way I can coach on the court or off the court the way I did back in 1975 when I got 10% of X. You know, I, I, uh, I'm 71 years old, but I got the same of X. I was, you know, 29, 30. And the age differential, you know, between some of my players and myself was, you know, maybe six or seven years. And now it's, you know, 50 something years. Uh, you have to recognize, you know, the changes we've had in society. You know, I, like I'm not on Facebook, but I, I you know, I text, I, I'm, I'm on Twitter. And if you don't make, if you don't adjust to those things, those off the court uh, things, then you're not going to be able to relate today's, you know, to today's athletes. Yeah, that's certainly certainly a challenge. I I'm not on Facebook either. I always I look at Facebook as more as a of a tool for people to find me, and I I don't want to be found, so I right. <laughs> I stay away from that one. But but I definitely uh, I do tweet, and I I obviously use text and things like that with players. So yeah, if you don't continue to evolve and and grow with the times, uh, we're gonna get left behind, I suppose. Right, exactly. And you have to make those, uh, you know, those adjustments. I mean, if you're going to coach for any length of time, you have, you have to, as long, I've always just said that as long as you don't, as long as my core values are not compromised, I can, I can, I can text or whatever it takes. But, you know, the core values of teamwork and all those types of things, you know, coachability, once those are compromised, it's time to pack it in. But, as long as those things, like you know, the, the extracurricular things, you can work around. So I've uh, I've taken up about a half hour of your time here, but I, if I could, I had read an interesting story that I'm hoping you'll recount for the listeners because if it's half as funny out of your mouth as when I read it, um, uh, it's got to be pretty darn funny. Can you recount the story in 1980 of the first meeting you had with Acadia? 
and Coach Ian McMillan and what happened and, and then what happened before the second meeting that year? Uh, sure. Uh, uh, I, I, this is something that would never happen today. No. <laughs> well, first of all, because... Uh, uh, because with, with Asia, hopefully wisdom, you, know, you also have to, you know, you, you gain wisdom. But also, if, if, if it ever happened today, uh, I would be suspended probably for 10 years or something <laughs> like that. But basically what happened is, and I have to preface this by saying that Ian McMillan was the coach at Acadia. He and I played together at Acadia, and he and I are, are very close friends. But what happened on that particular night, we had two of the best teams in the country. Uh, we both made it to the national tournament that year. We both, we played in the national, in the AUS championship that year. And we beat them in overtime. So there was not much difference between our two teams. We were both two of the top, uh, probably five teams in the country. Um, and despite our friendship, it was a, you know, we're both competitors. So we we're playing down at Acadia and the gym is packed with three or four thousand people there because like i said no this was you know the kind of the heyday of the aus uh, where we did have some really quality american players and they had a couple of, uh, of high flyers from uh from, from new jersey and i had a couple from new york and anyway our team noticed that you know watching acadia play uh that they like to hang out at center court and cherry pick and Get the ducks, you know. So I overheard my team saying before the game, "We're not going to let them get those ducks." And you know, I had no objection to that, that, that particular approach. I mean, nobody wants to get dunked on. For sure enough, first time they hung out at center court to go down for a dunk, one of our guys takes takes one of their guys out, and there's you know the ensuing melee that goes on afterwards and pushing and shoving and whatnot. And it might have happened again in the game as well. Anyway, to make a long story short, we, I think, lost that game. I think it was 103 to 102 or something like that. It was a great basketball game. And after the game, I go up to shake hands with uh, with Ian, and he starts wagging his finger in front of my face, saying, if you guys ever do this again, if you guys do this, if you guys, whatever he was saying, and then as he was doing this, his finger kept on getting closer and closer to my mouth. <laughs> I took a little bite out of his finger, and uh, <laughs> he looked at his finger, and he he, he, he couldn't believe it. And there was some, not a lot, but a certain amount of blood that was drawn out <laughs> by by my act. Anyway, uh, oh, so we're playing them the next week down in Acadia. And I'm worried all week. I'm not worried about it. I said, geez, you know, he's one of my good friends. Should I call him? Should I not call him? But anyway, I, I, I didn't want to lose a friend over it, you know. Uh, so we get to the gym, and sure enough, the place is packed again. All the Acadia fans have bandages on their fingers, <laughs> and they're all and they're doing a skit about me. They carry me out to center court in a coffin, and I, I, I intentionally didn't go out to see this <laughs> for obvious reasons. Uh, and who do I see walking down the hallway? It was Ian McMillan. And I walked down the hallway, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm about to apologize to him. And he gives me a big hug. And he says, listen, Steve, he says, you know, we'll always be we'll always be best friends. He said, look at that crowd out there. This is what basketball is all about. You know, so we went out and had another great game. I don't remember who won that one. I hope, hopefully we did. But, you know, that's something, a story that would never happen today <laughs> uh, for a variety of reasons. But uh, 
it was certainly a classic uh, back then. Uh, maybe I'll see if I can get away with biting somebody one of these days. We'll see what happens. Well, I, I wish you luck. <laughs> I, I don't think too many good things are going to come out of that. Well, I, I appreciate uh, the time you're spending here. We always, at the end of each uh, podcast, we do a quick thing that we call the Full Court Press, and, and I uh, give you a couple of really uh, quick questions looking for some one-word type answers. If we can end it on this note, let's see if you can uh, navigate this pressure. Sure. Do you prefer the age of the three-point line, or do you prefer uh, prior to the three-point line? Three point line. Prefer FIBA or Federation rules? FIBA. CIS or U Sport? Doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, do you prefer watching college or pro? Pro. The best player you ever seen in the CIS? Oh my goodness. Um. There's so many of them. I, that's a tough one. Give me a couple. Think. Give me a couple. Uh, I'll give you a couple going back. Uh, we had a great player named John Hatch to play for me. Uh, he'd be one of the, he'd be one of the ones. Uh, Mike Moser, who they named after the Mike Moser Award. Yeah. Uh, there's a couple. Back, and they're, they're back from the, you know, a long time ago. And finally, the favorite visiting arena that you've ever coached in, anywhere? I would have to say Cameron Indoor Stadium. Dukies. Coach K yeah. against Coach K. Yeah, no, the, the, the score, it wasn't because of the score. <laughs> my brother refused to come to the game because he said, he said, Mike is not going to uh, substitute, which he didn't do, substituted with two minutes to go. And... <laughs> So he's not going, but at the same time, it was a great experience. No mercy, eh? Those NCAA guys. Exactly. Uh, well, hey, Coach, thanks very much uh, for joining me tonight. You're you're a game out of first right now in the AUS, so I wish you all the best the rest of the season and uh, hopefully make a, another run at a fourth national championship. Well, that would be wonderful to be able to do that before, I'm, uh, before I pack it in, which is not going to happen for hopefully quite a while, but at the same time, with the Carlton run, everybody's chasing them, and uh, it'd be great to see somebody catch them, and uh, nobody, nobody's better than us. There you go. I wish you all the best. All right. Thank you, Coach. All right. Take care. You too. Bye. There you have it. There's a common theme in the stories Coach Kontrowski shared about playing basketball as a teenager, to a university player, and throughout his coaching career. It's dedication, commitment, passion, love for the game, and for developing people. If you enjoy the game of basketball as a coach, your players feel that. If you enjoy helping your players and treat them as people, then they thrive. And Coach Konchalski gets that. He has a ton of experience and knowledge, and we're lucky to have had him on the show. I think we could fill a few shows with the stories he's collected in well over 40 years of coaching. Which brings me to our special announcement about the podcast. We'll be adding a new segment to each show called Storytime with Coach K. 
Coach has already given us some great stories to use and we're looking forward to sharing them with you on a regular basis. He's going to make you laugh, make you think, and make you want to become a coach if you aren't already. I think you'll enjoy it. Did this episode remind you of a coach you've had or a basketball experience you've shared with someone? If so, we'd love to hear about it. You can go to coachcallstimeout.com slash stories to share your story. We're looking for stories about coaches who are creating fantastic memories for their players. Help give them the recognition that they deserve and possibly get their story told on this podcast. Again, you can go to coachcallstimeout.com slash stories to share your story. If you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate it if you could rate us on iTunes or share this episode with a friend or coach by going to coachcallstimeout.com slash 20. Here at Coach Calls Timeout, we're a basketball coaching resource built to help coaches improve their personal and technical skills. If you're interested in what we do, we have more resources than just this podcast. You can go to coachcallstimeout.com to learn more. There's even a free seven-day trial of our membership program you can take advantage of as a podcast listener. Just use the coupon code PODCAST when you're signing up. We currently have over 100 video plays and drills available for all game situations, ages, and skill levels, and we're adding more videos every month for our members. That's it for now. We'll be back in two weeks to pick the brain of another great coach. See you then.